Welcome, and thanks for listening to AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Today's episode is food security from past to present. Here's your host, Laura Hankey. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, everyone, for joining us here. Um, Julie, thank you for joining us here this morning. Thank you for having me, and thank you for being patient with me as I double this. <laughs> Absolutely. We understand heading into harvest. You know, it's, it's just a busy time of year for everyone, so no worries at all. So, you know, if you've spent much time around um, agriculture academia, the Borlaug name is just synonymous with research and education and outreach. To get started here this morning, Julie, talk about how your family's legacy has shaped where you're at today. So um, my grandfather was Norman Borlaug, and I had the opportunity to work with him. Uh, As a child, I was always interested in what he did. Um, For some reason, I was of the five grandchildren, I was the one interested in agriculture and knew I'd do something in his name one day. And I got to do that at the Borlaug Institute for International Agriculture at Texas A&M. My grandfather was on staff at Texas A&M, so we actually got to work together. And um, I got to see a different side of him and really learn and walk in fields with him, uh, be down in his um, wheat fields in Obergon and see how the wheat spoke to him and how he came alive and meet farmers in India who talked about how he and the Green Revolution and all that happened with those advancements helped save their families and educate their families. So it's been instilled at me in a a young age. And I think... um, when, when you see those opportunities for farmers to educate their children, especially girls, or when you actually go to regions, and I've spent a lot of time in East Africa, and you see people who are malnourished, children who are malnourished, and there's no reason for that. I understand why my grandfather was called to it, and I, too, am called to it. Right. And, you know, when we talk about education and outreach, what we're talking about is providing food security. You know, you teach someone to fish and and they feed themselves every day. And so talk a little bit about the work that your team is doing there at the Borlaug Foundation to make those things realities for some of these um, different countries. Well, a lot of us that come out of a land grant system understand the importance of the land grant system and the extension. So we had the research, teaching, and then the training that we took to the fields, to the farmer. And that is what made the United States so successful um, with our agrarian system. And that is key to every country. However, countries in Africa that are struggling with budgets or other countries don't have the ability to have that um, workforce and that extension program, their universities also aren't equipped as ours are. So it's really important. And one thing we at the Borlaug Foundation do is we support young um, agricultural scientists with um, small field grants to help them either with lab equipment or to further along their studies, or even if they have a um, entrepreneurial project they're doing. We gave $2,500 last year to a team that was working in Africa on um, diagnosing poultry disease. And, And when you think about if you're in rural Kenya, no one is going to come out and check on your chickens. And that is a source of livelihood, not even for food, but also for to generate extra cash to feed your family and educate them. So they had developed this um, web application where the farmer could speak with a vet that was in the city and get a prescription or diagnosis and how to treat the poultry. So we love to support things like that. Youth was one of my grandfather's um, 
most passionate causes. He always believed that we sometimes get a little ivory towered when we get older. And so it was always important to bring youth to the table because they don't look at food security as impossible. They don't look at all the political mm -hmm. issues and, and everything else that comes with it. They look at it as a challenge that they can overcome. Right. They still have that hope. And so with that, you know, you're president of the, of the Borlaug Foundation. Talk about some of the roles that your team is playing in eradicating food security challenges. You know, what are some of the tools that you're equipping these farmers with? Well, under the Borlaug Foundation, it kind of rolls into what we did at the Borlaug Institute for International Agriculture. And what we did is we worked on true development projects. And when I talk about that, it is taking the land grant teaching research and extension model and applying it to the field. So something we did at the Borlaug Institute was work with the um, farmers in Rwanda. And especially right after the genocide, um, coffee grows wild in Rwanda. They didn't understand how to actually plant and farm it. And we came in, helped form cooperatives and went all the way from establishing cooperatives to teaching them how to grow the coffee, how to wash, pick the appropriate cherries, all the way to actually producing coffee. And, and the coffee actually got to a point where it was being sold at Starbucks and other specialty areas. Wow. And the important part of that project was it was two U.S. universities, but it was also Af um, Rwandan universities, a Rwandan private sector. It had some U.S. private sector, and it also had uh, the Minister of Agriculture, who was Agnes Kalabata at the time, fully supporting the program. So she saw roads needed to be built to help the coffee farmers. She got that done. So it was a true, when I say a holistic development project, it really was. And what was so important was then came education, AIDS education, um, health, just general health um, and, and facilities and infrastructure and um, education. And that is what a true development um, program should look like. And, and we all know if, if we invest in agriculture, you're going to see growth within mm -hmm. an economy and you're going to see um, poverty lessen and you're going to see less of the political instability. Because as my grandfather said, um, you cannot create peace. You can't build peace on empty stomachs. So right. we want a stable world. We want everyone to be food secure. Food is the foundation of everything. Absolutely. So you mentioned the, the Borlaug Institute and the Borlaug Foundation. Talk about each of those entities and how they work together. Well, um, with the Borlaug Foundation, we have worked with the Borlaug Institute in funding some of their programs, but we've also funded some other really great programs. Um, we fund the Thought for Food program, which Thought for Food Challenge, which brings um, college from, it can be from undergrad to grad. There are teams that can be anywhere in the world and it's kind of an online um, entrepreneurial program. And then we bring them all together for a challenge. And, and it's almost like a shark tank. And, and we always um, give a take it to the farmer award. And that's really the team that's in the top five that's just not there yet but almost there. And uh, a few years ago, we had an all-female team that was working on rice. And they won the Borlaug Foundation, I mean, the, the Take It to the Farmer Award from the Borlaug Foundation. And through that, Thought for Food helped um, them with their pitches, and they ended up winning the Milken Award, 
$1 million. So wow. if we can be a springboard to any of those type of activities, to development activities, um, the Borlaug Foundation, we don't have, uh, you know, the financial resources that I would love to be able to have, but we also support anyone working in the Borlaug legacy. So if that's Iowa State, Minnesota, University of Minnesota, uh, Cornell, um, working with supporting anything Rockefeller does in agriculture. Gates has been so instrumental in working in wheat rust and, and other food um, issues. So we want to be supportive of all who are doing something to fight hunger. Well, and Julie, you have such a unique role, both personally and professionally. You know, you're helping to direct these funds and, and make things happen from behind the scenes, but you're also boots in the ground with these small stakeholder farmers helping to solve the challenges that they're confronted with every day. Talk a little bit about that. I, I think I've been... Um so fortunate to not only here in the United States, but to go to Eastern Africa, meet the smallholder farmers. And those are women, typically, whether it's in India. And when you get to talk to them, you understand what their needs are. Mm -hmm. Their soils depleted. They cannot do it in an organic method because if they're food insecure, their animals are also starving. There is no natural organic matter being created. So they need fertilizer. They need improved seeds. They need basic technology. If you look at what Africa did, they never built landlines. They just jumped to cell phone technology. So we shouldn't expect them to take our 20th century technology and move forward with that, let's give them the best of technology. So if that is gene edited seeds, if it's new health plant solutions that solve um, banana blight or citrus greening, or we were talking about maize leaf necrosis and fall armyworm, and that right. comes back to the United States, let's equip the farmers as long as it's sustainable, healthy, but let's have the farmers have the choice of how they want to farm. Mm -hmm. So with that, you know, how important is technology and especially biotechnology to solving these world hunger challenges? So I worked for a company called Anari, and we worked in gene editing, mainly corn and soy and wheat. And then I now work for a company called Envio, and we're working on plant health solutions. So when you talk about Xyla, which is an olive disease that's decimating the European olive and the, and the heritage culture built around that, you have citrus green in the United States that's pretty much um, killed off almost all of the Florida industry. Um, and then uh, we talked about fall armyworm here in the United right. States. We have these diseases and plant health that people don't realize how serious they are. Uh, before you and I got on, we talked about five or six that are going on in the world. If you think about how that can affect the um, food supply and also food security and political stability of the world, we've got to pay attention and put more funding into preventative measures, measures to um, stop these diseases. It, it, you look what happened with the locusts in um, Kenya and other parts of Africa, that can happen here. So we need to continue to use innovation and technology to fight these types of diseases. But most importantly, we have a lot of answers that are sitting on the shelf waiting for regulatory, and we have to release that. And the, my parent company is Flagship Pioneering that I work with at Envio, and one of their companies is Moderna, which has, of course, the COVID vaccination. I think we can learn a lot from the COVID vaccination and, and companies like Moderna, who are small companies 
who have been working on the technology for a while, but were infused with um, funding from the US government to really speed up the technology. And if you look at it, the regulatory system worked for them. It sped up and it made it an emergency. And we're gonna need that in agriculture as well. There's a lot of lessons learned here um, in local food supply to regional food supply. We still have a lot of um, shortages in the value chain due to shipping. So we've gotta make sure every country and region is um, prepared for any diseases, but it's technology that's going to enable that. Right. And in the past, you know, transgenic uh, genetic modification has been our straight line to helping to prevent some of these diseases and, and make the make them more preventative measures than reactive measures. Do you see gene editing taking the place of that in the future or do you see those two working simultaneously together? Well, if you look at a genetic modification, it, it, there's only seven, eight crops that really worked. For. Right. So, so um, it, it wasn't answering a full okay. um, problem. And it also was only working on one trait. When you look at gene editing, you're working within the plant. So genetic modification, you brought a foreign gene in to the plant structure. With gene editing, you're working inside that plant. So let's say we're working with maize corn that um, has some um, traits that make it more drought efficient, but they also have some traits that make it less efficient. So we can dial down the traits that make it less efficient and turn up the traits that make it more efficient. And that is working within the structure of the plant. And that's just understanding its DNA more. And um, I think with gene editing, there's so many things we can do. Uh, we're gonna learn a lot from human health. Of course, plants are very different, but I think um, where we can go and what we can do is gonna be amazing. And again, we just have to allow the technology to advance. Right, right. And you make such an important point. You know, I, there's only 10 genetically modified crops on the market today. Um, you know, looking at that small number, there's such a large controversy around those 10 crops. Um, and I think folks don't realize that there are only 10 crops. You know, you see that, you know, non-GMO label on everything. <laughs> And so how are you as a consumer to distinguish between those, you know, how do you meet those controversies head on to make this technology something that is part of our future, Julie? Well, I'll say the agriculture industry working in genetic modification made a mistake in the past. They, they weren't upfront with the technology. And then when some of the NGOs that were anti-GMO and anti-technology grabbed a hold of it, uh, the industry became combative, us versus you. And that is not the way to go about it. It needs to be more of a discussion and it needs to be a personalized story. Kind of what you just said, I get asked, you know, why is our lettuce GMO? Well, no one is genetically modifying lettuce. Mm -mm. And so when you go through just the 10 that are genetically modified, um, people are amazed. And, you know, when they get into why wouldn't you genetically modify lettuce? Well, there's no need to there. You know, it, the technology isn't needed. So why are we, you know, but um, it, it's an open, honest discussion I have. I, I think um, genetic modification has um, played an important role. I mean, it was working on one trade at a time where we can do more with gene editing. I just think we need to be open and honest. We don't want to repeat the same scenario in genetic modification, with genetic modification as we do in gene editing. I often think that people aren't really adverse to the technology because they don't understand it. They've just assigned anything that's negative 
to um, genetic modification, anything in agriculture. So if people don't like that, it used to be three or four companies that dominated agriculture, the seed industry, now there's only two, everything was the evil of genetic modification. So I think there's a lot of confusion that you kind of have to tease out when you're talking to someone. But again, it needs to be a discussion. We don't need to quote unquote educate. And I used to say that we need to educate, but that's kind of coming from a, um, right. That ivory tower, ivory (laughs) tower looking down at you. We need to have a discussion and explain Mm -hmm. and, and definitely starting with the 10 crops that are genetically modified. I like to talk about the papaya because we would not have Absolutely. papaya right now if it hadn't been genetically modified. So papaya is genetically modified and it saved papaya for all of us. Mm-hmm. And, and there are so many other things um, that are so important that genetic modification is done. But I, I also don't think people understand all that goes into, uh, you know, what genetically modified corn is and, and right. versus sweet corn. And so those are just discussions we need to have. Right, right. And, you know, from a food security perspective, you know, a lot of our challenges are logistics, not necessarily Mm -hmm. supply. And so, you know, when we start talking about things like the Arctic apple that doesn't brown after you cut into it, you know, that opens up a whole world of getting fresh fruit to people that wouldn't necessarily have access to that fresh fruit. Well, and and it's food waste. I mean, you know, it just drives me crazy if I cut an apple and my child doesn't eat it immediately. And then it's brown and he's not going to eat it. Well, that is food waste. And and it might just be a small amount, but it all contributes to greenhouse gases. Food waste, (laughs) one of the biggest problems, but you're right. It's not really the, um, the technology is there, but you know, developing countries need roads. They need regulatory, they need fertilizer, they need, um, seeds, uh, improved seed varieties. There's so much that goes beyond what people think about. And, 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 the whole genetic modification anti-group really causes a lot of issues for countries to be Mm -hmm. able to achieve food security. And we, and we need to stop that. Right. So, you know, what does lack of access to biotechnology in some of these developing countries, what does that mean to their agrarian system? Uh, Do they have a, a future? Well, if you, if you look at Uganda, um, you have a, um, banana blight, which, Ugandans, most of their diet, 90% of their diet is made up of um, plantains, bananas. People don't understand the importance of that. It's also a livelihood because it's a crop they can sell. It is being, um, I I hate to use the word decimated again, but they're going to lose their um, main um, stable food crop. Mm -hmm. And just like Uganda, everyone else has those stories and it only creates more conflict. When you're food insecure, you will go to great needs to feed your family. And um, that creates instability, which leads to what, you know, look at, we're looking at at Afghanistan right now, when you can't feed your families, what are you going to turn to? So we have to allow, there is technology to allow. There are people, um, Biotropics is working on gene editing in the banana to um, solve this problem, but we're going to need Uganda to pass regulatory to support gene editing. And we're going to need NGOs to stop spreading fear. And I always say this about um, NGOs and, 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 you know, for as much money as they spend on elaborate PR campaigns, 
why don't they put that money into research so they can feed someone? Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't like the solutions coming out of the private sector, then you do something because we're all looking for an answer. But, you know, 20,000 people die of malnourishment, hunger related diseases every day. A $25 million ad campaign is not solving anything or helping these people, but $25 million into research would change things or even school feeding programs for these children. So um, if you're going to be, I always say you can't be anti-hunger and anti-technology. It just doesn't work. Absolutely. The reason why we have the food system we have today is because technology. And by the way, nature is its own technology. It has done this and, you know, you use mustard seed and, and, and what must, you know, what, what came out of that, that is breeding. We can just speed it up right. as we've come up with advancements. Right. So, you know, looking to the future, how do we get some of these governments who have had adverse opinions about GMOs and agriculture technology how do we change minds and make this a viable solution for some of these small stakeholder farmers, Julie? Well, I, I think we have to look back, and this is this is kind of difficult, but um, a lot of um, aid for countries uh, is tied to um, your some of the European beliefs in agriculture. So if you kind of look at the colonial makeup of certain countries, um, they're gonna go by what the European belief is, whether it's you know France or Belgium or um, England, and they need to stop relying on those countries for guidance. And there shouldn't be a, a, a point where they don't receive aid because they don't believe in an agroecology system. They can't do it organically. They've been doing that for centuries and it's not working. So I, I think we need to help build up regulatory systems in um, these countries. We need to build up their academic institutions so they are producing their own researchers. They have the expertise and, and that's um, difficult. And I know there's, there's all sorts of um, issues within country governments, but um, the most we can do for farmers is make sure we take the technology available in any country and take it to the farmers. And that was my grandfather's last words. Mm -hmm. So, you know, technology is only as good as it reaches the fields. So we must push for countries to get technology in the hands of their farmers. Because if you have an agrarian system, agrarian system that's up and running, you'll be able to educate more, feed more, and help your own country's economy. Absolutely. And, you know, with a billion lives attributed to the work that your grandfather did, you guys are well on your way to doing the same. If you haven't already surpassed that, you know, the technologies that we have available today and and the opportunities that we have to change not only this generation, but future generations and create peace in some of these unstable places of the world. It's, It's such important work that your team does. Julie, as we look at wrapping up here this morning, any final thoughts? Um, I, I just, you know, we're, we're on um, the um, UN Food Systems um, Summit, and I have uh, been honored to be a champion for the uh, Champions Network for the Food Systems Summit. And, and one thing I'm going to say through going through this whole UN process, announcing collaborations with countries is great, but that's not action. And my grandfather always said, you know, lofty rhetoric isn't gonna solve hunger. It's being in the fields and taking action. So I hope if we learn anything from this UN food system is that we take action. 
and also that we hear from the countries who are the most hungry because you can have the wealthy nations, the UN members speaking, but if we're not listening to the countries and the farmers who are in need, we're not really solving anything. Absolutely. Fantastic final thoughts here this morning and something for us all to think about. Julie, thanks so much for your time. I know it's an incredibly busy time of year for you, so we certainly appreciate you taking the time to hop on and visit with us here this morning. Brian, I think we're ready to hand things back to you. Thanks for joining us for AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Connect with us on the web at agisuretrackcommunity.com.